As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. And on today's show, we have, uh, I guess, I think this is Danny's fourth time. We have Danny Sherson. Many of you guys already know Danny, but if you don't know, Danny was a major in the U.S. Army. He was in the surge in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a former history instructor at West Point, uh, author of the books Ghostwriters of Baghdad and Patriotic Descent. And just uh, type in Danny Sherson in your in your Google search, and you're going to find a million great articles and podcasts that he's on. And uh, Danny, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, so glad to do it. I love coming on, bro. History always fun. So this so this topic that we're going to be talking about, um, I think this might be our number one requested topic. We get a lot of our a lot of our audience is saying, hey. We know that Danny Sherson knows about the IRA, and you need to get him on the show to talk about it because we haven't really heard like a podcast on this yet. So um, I just want to give you, we were talking about this before we started recording, but um, I come from an Irish Catholic family and they are largely, uh, I would say sympathetic or they were sympathetic to the IRA. If you brought up a certain incident, they'd be like, well, you know, um, the British are terrible and they abuse Catholics for their entire occupation of Ireland. And Oliver Cromwell was the literally the devil. And um, that was kind of like their sense of justifying it. And we were talking about this before as well. Both my family, they make kind of a Mecca trip to Ireland to see the, uh, the, the kiss the Blarney Stone and all of that. So I think you mentioned that you had like kind of a similar background. Yeah, you know, definitely. Uh, you know, New York, Staten Island, Irish Catholic um, on my mom's side. I think in my experience, I tell people all the time from the Midwest, you know, I live out here in Kansas now, um, trying to explain like what it's like to grow up back there at that time. And I said, you know, like on Staten Island, there's only really three types of white people that you're allowed to be. You have to pick, like, even if you're not one, like you're either <laughs> Italian or you're Jewish or you're Irish. Now, the problem with that is there's like all kinds of Polish people and Greek people and German, right? But you're not allowed to be that. And it's like a cultural thing. So you know, I think I was kind of like typecasted because I was, you know, living with my mom's side of the family uh, as as Irish, right? But I'm, I'm not even full Irish, just like one side of the family. But they were, um, you know, really none of them have been to Ireland. My mom eventually went, um, I think, yeah, when I was in Iraq. And um, so not a, like a lot of visceral connection to Ireland, but definitely a cultural Irish Catholic nationalist sort of resistance sympathetic family as well um i was a teenager when the war was closing out right the last phase of it so you know there's the um the first big and extensive ceasefire was 95 so i'm in like eighth grade and then 
the, they go back to war in 96. Uh, the IRA walks away from the peace um, for a number of reasons. And, and they, they fight again in 96, 97. And then, you know, 98, I'm like a sophomore or junior in high school. And it kind of comes to, for now, right, a, a close with the Good Friday Agreements. But, you know, on the lingering end of that, when I first started going to bars, which was significantly underage, but there really wasn't <laughs> any drinking age in, like, neighborhood New York, you know. When I first started going to bars, they were still – um, there were still cans on certain bars in certain neighborhoods that would say like, give a dollar, kill a British soldier. I mean, legit. And like people from like Philly and Boston will tell you that that was like true too. Right. And actually even in like San Francisco, like there, there are these like areas that were very pro, uh, you know, I don't think that most people in my family were particularly, uh, like sophisticated on the issue. I mean, they weren't like intellectual types studying it, but their inclination, their reflex was like you're describing. It was very, it was kind of simplistic it was Irish resistance is freedom fighting or it's legitimate armed resistance. And the U.S. government's position, which was generally, generally that the IRA are terrorists, um, and certainly middle America's position, that was not theirs. And um, the idea was, you know, other stickers that you would see on cars, in bars, on liquor store glass was like, 26 plus 6 equals 1, right? Uh, 26 counties of the Republic of Ireland plus the 6 counties of Northern Ireland equals mm-hmm. 1 32-county United Irish Republic. And that was just common. And and when I tell people out here about what that was like, how that was just kind of the backdrop and a common backdrop, they're like – they would – like people in Kansas have no idea what that would even mean. If they saw 26 plus 6 equals 1, they'd be like, well, that's just nothing. That's just arithmetic. But it was very much – a subculture that I think a lot of people understood the references, even if they weren't Irish. So, yeah, I mean, I remember my grandmother was the first one who told me about Northern Ireland. Um, Mary Elizabeth O'Brien, May, uh, who I adored, super smart, would have been like an English professor if she had been raised in a different neighborhood in time, you know, like a different generation. But instead, you know, she was a housewife who never even learned to drive an automobile, you know, um, but she was very smart and she was a little more nuanced on some things, most things, but on that, she was pretty black and white. And I remember her telling me that like, like she, I remember her sitting me down and saying like, today I'm going to tell you about our people. And I was like, our people, you mean like the urban white trash? And she was like, no, 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 <laughs> no. Like our people, like the Irish, like, and it was, yeah, it was pretty intense. And I, I will admit like, until I started really studying the issue, and it's still with me. You'll hear it. It's still with me. Like, I, I have some blind spots on this. But, um, yeah, I was full-throated with them. You know, it was very romantic. And we'll talk about why. There's a particularly romantic element, I think, to Irish resistance because of its, like, Catholic and martyrdom culture. And it's interesting when you compare it to the, you know, uh, Islamist terrorism or whatever you want to call it or resistance. It's There's so many parallels, and yet I think most people don't see it, right? So, so Danny uh... – Explain for me, you know, that the outsider on this show today, you know, I didn't grow up with an Irish Catholic family, you know, that uh, leaned in this direction. Can you tell me like a brief overview of like this history of Ireland um, and specifically like why the British rule in Ireland was so contentious and like what what was going on there? Because I think you're right for the folks in Kansas, you know, that didn't grow up around those areas or even for people like me who just was out of loop on this one, you know, what? What happened? What's the deal? You know, the very I'm not known for being brief, but I really will try. Um, <laughs> the th- there's a lot of talk finally 
among scholars about like settler colonialism. And it's usually used to describe um, the British in North America, uh, Canada and the United States, uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, right? And then the more like radical people who are willing to like, you know, torpedo their career will talk about like Israel as like a settler colonial state. But it, it's, it's fairly rare, except in scholarly circles, to talk about the settler colonialism of the British in Ireland, which forms the model, actually. They study it for how they treat Native Americans and indigenous folks, Aborigines or indigenous folks in Australia. So, you know, we're talking in the medieval era. You'll hear a lot of Irish people say like a thousand years of British repression. It's mm-hmm. kind of a buzzword, right? Um, it's a little more complicated than that, but the the British um, early invasions, armed interventions, they usually didn't stay completely in the first few hundred years. Um, they start, you know, at the high Middle Ages, right? And these very divided Irish kingdom fiefdoms and stuff that were often, you know, obviously at war with each other. It's not unlike the divided Middle East, right, at the time of the First World War. When the Ottoman Empire breaks up, they, you know, the 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 British play them against each other, or the the English crown does uh, defeats them in a number of battles, starts the process of um, anglicizing the Irish people, but the real pivot point when it becomes hardcore settler colonial, and by that I mean to either displace or subjugate their locals into like serfs. And then move in your own people to like displace them either completely in the case of North America or partially and in terms of power structure in Ireland. That really does begin when you start talking about like Oliver Cromwell uh, around the time of the English Civil Wars. So in the sixth, the, the first half of the 17th century, the 1630s, 40s, 50s, the, the English come and they stay. And it's not just the English. At this point, it starts to become British. So even though it's not until 1707 that the union between Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland forms Great Britain, it, it becomes a British thing in the sense that Protestant Englishmen, but particularly Protestant uh, Scots, right? So you start hearing about Scots-Irish, you know, this is where a lot of this comes from. They, uh, they start sending like minor lords, right? Like minor aristocrats over to Ireland where they can kind of jump up in terms of rank and prominence and maybe even wealth. And they form a very much a plantation system. So while there's not slavery in the sense of chattel black slavery in North America and the Caribbean and South America, the the Irish Catholics become an underclass within their own country. And they are their serfs. I mean they they, they legitimately are. And the landowners, uh the the landlords really, are uh, are mostly uh Scottish Protestant, uh some English Protestant, and for hundreds of years, the Ireland is technically one with England, Wales, and Scotland to form this, you know, Great Britain and the uh, United Kingdom of Great Britain, you know, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. That the next, and here's the thing to understand at every single generation, to some extent, this is another myth. This is another like cultural, like touchstone for the Irish Catholics. The idea is that every generation has an uprising. And these are very fatalistic people, if you've ever met like Irish Catholics. And the the idea is every generation has to have one uprising against British rule. And there's very little, like, it's almost more romantic to fail, which is great because they always fail or they usually fail. Hmm. And so there are these like regular uprisings 
uh, sometimes they're more like tenant uprisings based on class, sometimes, but they're always tinged with ethnicity and religion. Uh, there's a big one in 1798. The French even get involved a couple of times, especially around that time in like the Napoleonic era or the pre-Napoleonic era and like come to the support of the Irish. That's another theme you're going to start seeing where outside powers sort of jump in and the Irish look to them for support against the British because they're so isolated. And uh, the big turning point, though, is the First World War and the Easter Rebellion of 1916. So amidst World War One. The, uh, the Irish rise in Dublin primarily, the Irish volunteers, um, what is the Irish Republican Brotherhood, these like smaller organizations that become, you know, they become what we now know as the IRA really in 1916. They rise up and they, they take the post office and some other government buildings. And it's largely symbolic and they read a proclamation of independence, blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, this is in the midst of World War One when Ireland is a key co-equal theoretically part of England. So like there are hundreds of thousands of Irishmen, Irish Catholics mostly fighting in the trenches. And so this is seen as the greatest treason possible, right? April of, you know, 1916 to be rebelling against the country that's in what they saw as an existential war with the Germans. So there's a massive repression and the British do what the British often do, which most occupiers and most uh, colonial and neocolonial forces do, which is they overreact with their harshness and they actually create a new and ever stronger generation of resistance because interestingly and this is my final theme i'm going to mention uh the ira is usually only a very small substratum armed resistance even though it's prominent is a, is a minority and it usually only garners popular widespread popular support among the irish catholic population occasionally and in response to mass british repression of the whole so the British actually end up shooting themselves in the foot oftentimes. So in this case, even though the Dublin Rebellion of 1916 is brutally put down, the leaders are executed by firing squad. They include like poets and politicians. It's like typical romantic Irish flair, right? Um, and then there's the War of Independence. And that's really, you know, 1919 to 1922. So a rising does act, a real rising happens. And there's a sort of counterinsurgency slash guerrilla war. The Irish are maybe not winning, but they're bleeding the British enough. And the British have rebellions like all over their colonies after World War One, And they're busy. So a deal is struck, though. And, and the deal that struck is partition. And the biggest sticking point to the British just getting the F out is what do we do with these many, many hundreds of thousands, by that point, maybe a million or two mm -hmm. um, Protestant people who can trace themselves back to Scotland or, or England. And most of them, but not all of them, but most of them, the plurality or the majority, live in the northern six counties of Ulster, which is like a subset of Ireland, what's now Northern Ireland. And so the deal that's struck with the, some of the more moderate leaders of the IRA is a partition. So Northern Ireland's top six counties stay with the British, the bottom 26 stay with, become this new Irish free state that is technically still under the Queen, but or the king, but quickly sort of declares full independence and nobody's going to go back and fight over it. That stays fairly dormant. What you have is like an apartheid light system, I would say. Apartheid uh, light? Can yeah. You explain a, that? Apartheid light. So, you know, the, a lot of like Irish Catholics in the North would probably reject my use of that phrase because mm -hmm. they would style themselves equally as oppressed as like apartheid in South Africa or something like that. The reason I say light is it's not quite the level of segregation and repression. 
but it is real. Second class status in housing and jobs primarily. Uh, and so the output is that, um, you know, there's a dormancy for a while and the IRA is kind of back underground because most Irish people are just happy to have their republic in the bottom 26. But there are basically like small scale pogroms in August of 1969 because in 67 and 68, and I'm sorry, this is actually my last theme, the Irish tend to, the Irish Catholics tend to link themselves to broader international solidarity with resistance occasionally. And so in response and influenced by the American civil rights movement of the early 60s, Martin Luther King portraits just show up all over Ireland suddenly, um, and not just him, but other uh, black civil rights activists, there's the Irish, the Northern Irish civil rights movement forms, and they start doing peaceful marches in 68, 69. And not so much the British, but the Protestant proxy state, you know, it's mostly locally run, has a lot of autonomy, Protestant militias that are sort of colluding with the Protestant authorities because the police are dominated by Protestants, etc. They um, they brutally repress these civil rights marches, but then also like Protestant people, not all of them, but like some of the more militant ones who live side by side in these kind of underclass urban ghettos, especially in Belfast, they like go on the warpath a little bit and they burn out blocks worth, several blocks worth of Irish Catholic families in Belfast in particular. And so this re-raises the profile of armed resistance and that's when the war that we think of now as like the IRA's 30-year war kicks off in like August of 69 and we can get into the details but for the bottom line is the British have a, a bit of a trouble on their hands for 30 years until the 98 Good Friday Peace Accords and you have what starts out as almost like a pretty full-throated guerrilla war that is basically repressed and unsustainable that turns into like a low-intensity insurgency slash some people would call terrorism campaign that goes on for about 30 years and then the good friday accords kind of bring that to a close and the the compromise this time is that the uh there still is a northern ireland but there's like this vague promise of in the future if the catholics become the majority because at the time i believe it's about 60 40 protestant in the north that you know there's the potential that there could be independence someday if people want it but more than just that there's uh, they get like some power sharing. So they get more spots on the police force. They get more mm. political representation within the Northern Ireland local structures, but also within parliament itself. And a lot of the former IRA commanders become, like you see in many other civil wars, like in Lebanon, they become politicians. And it's been like a stasis ever since. But there's always a stratum of Irish resistance that refuses to accept the treaties. And there are splinter groups, but they've generally been pretty minimal in their ability to wage serious violence so that's that's the basics that that was great danny Th thanks for the, the the overview on that i was wondering if you, if you can just um narrow down a little bit more on like the why there because right now what i'm, what I'm understanding is is largely you know we have groups of like of like sects you know we have the irish catholics and and then the, the british protestants you know uh, and, and that's really all I'm getting as to the, why there's animosities. And, and, and I feel like that's, that's a little bit, um, almost, uh, it's almost like saying the reason why, you know, the Middle East is the way it is, is because there's, you know, Sunnis and Shiites, you know, and, and that's, a, it's a, it's a bit, um, 
it's not nuanced, right? So like what what exactly causes that, that underlying strife, do you think? You know, that's a really great point. There's, it's easy to simplify it as either a national thing, an ethnic thing, or a relig- religious thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, intra-Christian civil war. It's actually, it's kind of all of them, but one should always be skeptical of the simplification and both sides do it when it suits their needs. I think there's always been a class component because this, you know, this landlord sort of system made sure that there was like a permanent underclass economically among the Irish Catholics. What are the British getting out of it? If that's the question, I mean, there is a religious component because it's not an accident that when England goes full-throated settler colonial in the 1600s, it just happens to be uh, on the heels of the Protestant Reformation Mm. and a very zealotous sort of Cromwell, you know, kind of Puritanism in, I don't mean in terms of the American sense necessarily, but in in terms of like stripped-down Protestantism, a very radical nature to that. And so the Irish really are. And the thing, that, and there's even a racial component and that'll sound strange because we think race, we think black, white, right? A lot of the language on race and native Americans has been a lot of scholarship done on this that is applied in North America because, Oh, by the way, the founding of the early British colonies is also at the same general time. And this, none of this is an accident. Right. So what you have with that is the British racialize the Irish as the Irish Catholics, the Irish indigenous as like genuinely kind of like subhuman, barbaric, uh, uncivilized. And so the British have like a civilizing mission. They have a Protestantizing mission, which never really takes hold. Hence bringing in the landlords. And it's, um, Ireland is close to, to England. Ireland is close to great Britain. And, and, and there's a foreign policy component. Britain, England is, is, and has always been very scared of its island status being thwarted, just like America in its early century was like really focused on the, its oceans as its great defense. Mm-hmm. The British are scared to hell of foreign powers from the continent weaseling themselves into the British Isles and Ireland's close by. And so one of the ways to make sure that the Spanish first, who were the main enemy, and then the French, and there's always a Catholic Protestant component, but it's not only that, it's geopolitics, that they'll get a foothold. And they have reason to can be a concern about that, but it's a quick chicken or egg question. Anyway, the idea is they just they want to dominate the whole of the British Isles for strategic purposes. Um, mm-hmm. Ireland's like they do gain something from the landlord crops export economy, but I don't think that the profitability of that warrants their the vehemence right of their commitment to holding on to Ireland. And now. In the more modern era, post-colonial era, when most of the empire goes kaput, it's actually kind of a burden for the British in many ways. It's it's a misunderstanding to say that the British are just trying to live out their empire. There are a lot of politicians in Britain in the late 60s and 70s when this thing kicked off hardcore again who saw this as a burden. But the Protestant Irish settlers or their descendants who have been there for hundreds of years in many cases – they are like more British than the British. They're like more Catholic than the Pope, but you know what I mean? They're more British than the queen. And they're like, no, you have to protect us. And then the British are stuck in this position where they're like, Jesus, like we've, 
we're getting pulled in all directions, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So there's like, there's ethnic, there's religious, there's class, and there's geopolitical components to all this, if that helps at all. So yeah, totally. So there's, the, it's, it's complicated is what you're trying to say. It's yeah. like a lot of things going on at the same time. It, so yeah, like, it, how, how does that bring us to, uh, as you pointed out in the, the end of your last uh, explanation to like this, the late sixties and early seventies and, and how the violence started escalating then like, um, this history, like colored by this history of oppression and also just a bunch of crazy you know either geopolitics race relations class relations you know religious uh relations how how does it how does it spiral off into the late 60s yeah so you know i would argue that in many cases by the late 60s it the class component is very strong and when economics can tie itself to culture in a tribal way we've seen right the world over history over how that can be pretty toxic Mm -hmm. and so you have mass unemployment in the irish catholic community of northern ireland uh is it an accident that the shipyards and the industry of northern ireland is going through some of the same kind of like deindustrialization and reorganization of the global economy that we see in youngstown is also happening in Belfast. And so you have in an, a long oppressed, a long second class citizen status Irish Catholic community that is meeting the perfect storm of economic fallout in general, which is going to hit the them first, right? Last hired, first fired, right? That whole deal. Mm-hmm. So you got all this economics happening in the late 60s, but it's tinged with a sense of professional victimhood among the Irish Catholics, which is not meant to minimize the reality of the victimization, but let's be clear, victim becomes an identity, right? Yep. And it's a proud one, mm-hmm. a proud one among the Irish. I've seen it growing up in America, right? Um, and then what gets laid on that is this religion, but something to keep in mind, especially in the 70s and 80s, as the IRA moves left politically, which we'll talk about, these are not particularly religious guys, okay? Um, and that is true we've seen in the Middle East in some cases too, right? Not all of the resistance in Iraq were like very well-practicing Muslims, right? Um, so the, so the, temp, like the template, the, the layer of religion is there, but not all – in fact, in most cases, neither side is particularly – except for the, some zealots on the wings, most – fighters most resistors and then oppressors and they see themselves the protestants see themselves as victims that's a problem they're playing a game of like victim chicken the protestants think they're victims because they're the minority if you look at ireland as a whole and they 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 tell the story that they're going to be wiped out culturally and maybe even physically and certainly economically if ireland ever unites mostly myth there and then the irish catholics see themselves as the victims within northern ireland so it's like there's a victim off but the, most of the rank and file in these organizations, and eventually most of the leadership, especially by the eighties, they're not religious people. In fact, they the Irish cat the the IRA really hard by the mid to late seventies tries to remove religion from their rhetoric and their public proclamations and their writing and their magazines and their newspapers because they have those um, because they say that their argument is we are like, we are cross class resistance movement that's motivated by uh economics because they say they want a socialist republic and by nationalist resistance 
it's our Irishness and our desire for a social democracy or maybe even a socialist republic that is driving us. In fact, they say, Protestants should join us. Hmm. We'll, we'll accept Protestants into the IRA. Now, in practice, that doesn't happen. Not much. Almost not at all. But there is a tradition of Protestants supporting Irish resistance. And in fact, one of the leaders of the 1798 rebellion, which is one of the top three or four biggest rebellions of, Irish, of the Irish, is Wolf Tone. Uh, and Wolf Tone was Protestant, right? So it, there is some of it, but for the most part... So I guess what I'm saying is that by the late 60s and 70s, I think that the perfect storm now is more economic, class, deindustrialization, reconfiguring the global economy, second class status based on sort of ethnicity, but more just old fashioned culture of religion rather than the practice of like there are very few people in the streets arguing about, you know, uh, Luther's you know, theses, you know, right. <laughs> it's not like that. It's more cultural. It's like, I'm, I'm Irish Catholic, which means I'm treated poorly and uh, I'm a victim. And therefore I deserve more say in my own government. Mm. Yeah. It's more of a political term than like an actual argument over theology. Like they're not arguing over, um, you know, the relationship with bishops and hierarchies and versus a direct relationship with God. They're, they're, they're talking about it in terms of, uh, like a political class, like in Northern Ireland, Ireland, what is it about 70% Protestant or 30% Irish and 70 to 70% dominates to 30%. Is that kind of the dynamic that you're seeing in the late sixties, early seventies? Yeah, that's right. So, um, without having the stats in front of me, but it's pretty close, you know, if the number is 70% Protestant, 30% Catholic, or maybe it's closer to 60, 40 Protestant Catholic. If you look at the police force, if you look at the bureaucracy of government and when deindustrialization is happening, government jobs in the much more social welfare heavy British system become one of the primary employers. So when it comes to the security forces and general political and just bureaucracy of state jobs, they are like 80, 90 percent or more Protestant. And so it's it's a it's a competition for resources that just happens to have an ethnic and a religious and to some extent nationalist component like laid upon that. I think it just fuels it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and politics is, you know, the control of, of resources, you know. Um, so the IRA, it it kind of there, there's a lot of like manifestations of it. But the, the IRA that we know, um, you know, the guys with the ski mask and you know, wearing street clothes in the AK-47. Um, they're, they're the provisional, like, army council that splits off from the IRA in the late 60s. And their membership is really uh, boosted when there's that famous incident, Bloody Sunday, where the British, troop, the British troops shoot about, I don't know, 25, 20, 25 to 30 people and, and then blame it on... Um, they, they falsely accuse victims of, of being uh, gunmen and bombers. And that really leads to like the um, increase in number in like what we know as the IRA. Is that kind of like where um, a lot of this kind of splinters off in, in that in that time period? Like this, this, this uh, incident, Bloody Sunday. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, so, yeah, to some extent, there's, there's truth in that. Um, it certainly heightens it. And 1972 is the pivotal year. Um, it's the year of the highest casualties and the mass resistance that almost goes full-throated like guerrilla war for that one year. I think uh, it's like a hundred something British soldiers die or killed and thousand wounded in one year. Um, in the 1980s, it could take like eight years to kill that many British soldiers or maybe the whole decade. It was a big deal. And that doesn't sound like high numbers compared to even the American campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. But when you look at the population numbers involved, you know, where you only have a few million people in Northern Ireland, I mean, the casualty rates are very high, um, very high. You know, if you extrapolated those numbers to the United States or even to a Middle Eastern country. But anyway, the the war had already kicked off by 72. I believe Bloody Sunday is, well, I don't know, maybe, I can't remember, March 72. It's, it's it maybe even earlier, January 72. It's early in 72. Here's what's interesting about the rise of the IRA and that split. Um, after the 1922 peace and partition, 21-22, the IRA does go kind of dormant. They lose a civil war. So when Michael Collins, right, everyone's seen the movie, like I think it's like Liam Neeson and mm -hmm. like Aidan Quinn are in that, right? It's a pretty good movie, the story of Michael Collins. Um, Michael Collins is like one of the great guerrilla leaders of the War of Independence after World War One, but he's the one who helps to negotiate the peace that and agrees to partition. And he's seen as a traitor by a lot of his rank and file. So uh, Eamon de Valera, which... It's important to understand that there's like immigrants who come to Ireland and that's why they have last names that sound like Italian or Spanish or whatever. But he leads largely the anti-treaty faction of the IRA and a, a civil war kicks off that goes on for like a year, but it's really hot for like six months. More Irish people die in the civil war after the treaty than in the war of rebellion. More Irish Catholics killing Irish Catholics, right? The anti-treaty forces lose the war, but kind of win the peace. They actually end up, years later, De Valera becomes president of the Republic of Ireland, or the Free State, that becomes the Republic. His party is still is dominates the Irish Republic for most of its history, even today. 
in Ireland, the two main parties, like they're Republicans and Democrats, trace their roots to the anti and pro treaty faction. But because everything's complicated, once De Valera becomes president, even though he'd been anti treaty and like fought against the peace, once they have power, they stop caring a whole lot about Northern Ireland. And there's utter apathy, at least in the government and among most of the people, for the struggle of their Irish Catholic brethren in the north. They're kind of forgotten for like 50 years until these uh, pogroms in August in Belfast, until the British army is then sent in in 1969 to separate – does that sound familiar? <laughs> to separate the warring factions. At first – in 69, most Irish Catholics are happy to see the British Army because they're scared of the Irish Protestants. Now, why would they be scared of the Irish Protestants if they have this IRA to protect their community? Well, they don't. In fact, the IRA was so dormant in those years. It still existed. It always existed. And they did some minor bombings in the UK and they did a minor campaign where they would attack like border outposts of police and soldiers in 1956, the border campaign, 56 to 62 it was called, but it was very low casualties, very ineffective, total failure, right? Uh, the IRA had like, the, the rumor is, and historians have written about it, the IRA had like four guns in Belfast, four, like they had like no fighters, no guns. They had like an old Thompson that didn't even barely work. And the IRA was utterly exposed. The official IRA was utterly exposed as in, unable to protect their own people from a, what was seen as like a pogrom. Uh, you know, it wasn't a lot of casualties, but there were some. Um, in fact, you started to see graffiti around Belfast in 69 that said IRA. And they wrote like down from that, I ran away. Right. Huh. So, like, Irish Catholics were like, the IRA is not tough enough. They were unable to protect us. So they actually were, like, happy the British Army came. But at that point, a younger crop of more radical street kids from Belfast and Derry, and to some extent from the very Catholic-dominated border rural provinces like Armagh and uh, Tyrone and Fermanagh, they start saying we need to, like, rearm and use this moment to like make a final break because the British state is not meant for us. It's not going to protect us. And they had a point. At that point, the official IRA, which was basically had moderated, wasn't as enthusiastic about armed rebellion. I was interested in getting into politics and running for office, peaceful means of getting power. There's a split. And the provost, the provisional IRA, which according to its own mythology and literature and streak of graffiti, styles itself the phoenix. You'll see the symbol of the phoenix often rising from the ashes, rising from the ashes of the burnt apartment buildings and row houses of Belfast in August of 69. That's their imagery they still use. Um, rising from the ashes is the phoenix of the provisional Irish Republican Army that says we want armed rebellion. And there's a split. In fact, there's a little mini civil war that's more like gangland executions on the street. They do kill each other a little. The officials are basically, no one cares about them much anymore. They like lose legitimacy in the streets, as often happens, because they couldn't protect their people. And the provosts become prominent. Suddenly, this younger wave of leaders, Martin McGinnis, Jerry Adams, these are the names you've heard, they rise up. They're young guys. They're in their 20s. And they're like, no, our generation, this is our rising, right? Remember, once a generation, we have to rise. We're going to lead this one. Those old, crusty folks, with a few exceptions, they're not going to protect us. So they go to war. And they go they go to war. They get guns 
first. Um, sometimes they like make their own guns. Then they get them from the ETA movement in uh, in uh, in northern Spain, the Basques, and then they get them from Europe on the illegal arms trade. Most of them, though, come from the United States. IRA supporters within the United States, some of them stolen from American U.S. Army arsenals in some serious robberies, including an M60 machine gun that kills a lot of British soldiers. But then, often through U.S. Irish organized crime, by the way, that helps make this happen. And then eventually they get guns from the Libyans, Gaddafi in the early 80s. That's right. So Didn't they that, also work with the Colombian insurgents like FARC? That's right. And that's that's later, and, and, and I'll, I'll touch on that uh now or later when we talk about hezbollah too because there's sure, some involvement yeah. there but the thing is um when the treaty in particular is made in the late 90s the people who didn't support that treaty are looking for new sources of weapons uh Gaddafi cuts them off because he's trying to save himself from more bombings by the british and the americans you know so he eventually kind of cuts them off and now they're like their best source of arms is gone and the americans really tightened up too and put a lot of people like Whitey Bulger's gang in jail or on the run because it was the Whitey Bulger faction in Boston that mm-hmm. um, that was very much helping them, right, get their guns. So Did you watch that movie, by the way? I did, yeah. I've seen pretty What'd much you think? all those. Um, you know, I, 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 I like the story. I was not super pleased with, like, the – I don't know. I liked it, but I thought, like, for example, The Departed is more fiction, but I thought a better movie. Does that make sense? Yeah. But but the the but the Whitey Bulger like movie that that was more accurate. I thought it was good. I thought Johnny Depp was. Yeah, pretty... he creeped me out, but it, like in a good way. Yeah, and I think that was pretty accurate from what I've like read about Whitey mm-hmm. Bulger. But yeah, so anyway, that's the split um, initially, and the Provos in the early so about Bloody Sunday so. The British get there, they're happy they're there, but what happens when an occupying army stays, even if they were there to protect you? The people turn on them pretty quick. Uh, not initially. Initially, the provosts are like, no, we. this is bad. This is bad that the Irish Catholics like the British because we want to turn this into a war of independence, another mm-hmm. one. So they're like attacking the British a little, but they're still like forming and they don't have a whole lot of street support. And did I lose you? No. Oh, okay. And yeah, um, anyway, the the British overreaction to that is what turns the Irish Catholic community into the arms even more of the IRA. There's two things that happen. Internment, mass internment, like the American army did in Iraq in 2003. In the summer, General Odierno was a big, big part of this. Fourth Infantry Division to crit. Um, in response to this low intensity but growing insurgency and especially in the urban areas they just literally arrest tons hundreds of military age irish catholic males uh with only most of them with only vague ties to the ira most of them are innocent and they Mm -hmm. intern them without trial in these camps which become terrorism factories as the british would admit or rebellion factories depending on your perspective that's happening and then the irish civil rights movement doesn't go away. In fact, the majority of Irish Catholics are still in favor of a peaceful resistance. So these marches are continuing, even though the IRA is re-ramping up, and they're not really linked as much as the British think they are. In fact, they kind of reject one another to some extent, at least in the beginning. Mm-hmm. The Bloody Sunday March happens, and the British powers open up 
uh, on the crowd and killing, you know, um, I don't know, about a dozen, a little more than a dozen, uh, and wounded many, many more peaceful Irish protesters, none of whom were armed. And uh, that was huge. And, and hence the U2 song, Sunday Bloody Sunday, and, you know, all this stuff. But um, although the U2 was not, like, supportive of the IRA, but that, that, that became resonant. And by 72, the bloodiest year the second half of that year, really the last like 10 months of that year, it's like running street battles in Belfast and in Derry. And then it's like straight up guerrilla warfare in like the footpaths and the woods and the farms of the border counties that touch the Republic. Cause they're able to jump over the border just like in Vietnam or Afghanistan. And it's, it's pretty crazy. And it's really amateur hour too. These like young IRA guys with like no training, no military training. Whatsoever. They would just like, dr- yeah. I mean, there are so many stories and it sounds so like stereotypical of like dudes just like drinking in, in a pub and being like, hey, let's attack the next patrol that comes by. And then just like going to their like stash and like grabbing some guns and just having a gun battle in the street and then like going back to the bar and stuff like. But the problem with that system is the attrition was really high mm-hmm. in terms of arrests, wounding and killing of like the IRA fighters because it was kind of amateur hour. But it did cause serious British casualties. Both sides adjusted. The British got a little more sophisticated in their coin and tried to turn it into a more policing problem than a military problem and then had some success with that. And the IRA counter-responded with going to like a cell structure, which helped the British counterintuitively, although it makes sense to paint them as more terrorists. And they also go more towards bombing than gun battles. Well, so I think you bring up a really good point. Um, and a lot of what you're talking about with the IRA and its structure and you know the reasons why it came about um sound crazy familiar you know to a lot of the topics that we talk about on the show especially in middle east foreign policy you know um on how radicalist groups form you know in you know in various countries so you know what's the connection here um between the ira and say maybe arab nationalist movements like for example the plo there's not only is there enormous uh, connection conceptually, there's enormous connection within these groups. At the time, they see each other as allies. Um, I mean, I, I don't know it, how, to the extent that you do like show notes and, or, or can include pictures, but the murals of Belfast in particular the like rebellion the i the pro ira mural game is strong it's actually beautiful if you're into like street art sure yeah and i'll send you some it's wildly interesting please Um, we'll include it in the 70s and in the 80s and even today the uh, the pro ira resistance murals include of course like the catholicism martyrdom sainthood stuff for their fighters but also there it is very common to see like crossed flags of the irish republic tricolor and the palestinian flag uh or the eta basque flag colors um they see themselves more and more as they turn leftist and secular in the mid to late 70s they see themselves as part of a broader global anti-imperialism anti-neo-imperialism resistance movement and they draw connections uh definitely conceptually uh, and in terms of solidarity with these movements, but also there is a sharing of training, 
the IRA guys go overseas and train and give training and, you know, vice versa with like groups like the PLO and then to some extent with Hezbollah later, the ETA, which is this like very obscure, but in Spain, important Basque nationalist slash terrorist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and Gaddafi taps into that in Libya because Gaddafi styles himself as this like global international anti-Western imperial figure and that's why he's willing to support the IRA which really he doesn't gain a whole lot out of it in fact he takes a lot of cost for it so yeah there's a lot of connection but that's the actual what they see themselves as connected oh by the way you'll also see pictures of Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X painted next to Irish flags all over Belfast incredibly interesting I'll send you all of it but um, in terms of how these things form what we can learn what are the connections I think that there is a sectarian aspect to the Irish fight, and I've written about this about America. The word sectarian has come to be conceived of Sunni Shia. It has to be like religious. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, when you know the text, you know the dictionary definition of that is just sects. They don't have to be. They can be religious. ethnic. They can be whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's a component to that, and. So that's one connection is like when you have these more fractured societies that like come apart and become like there's a resistance or a civil war, um, you know, things get they go south pretty quick and they spiral, you know, and they and they heighten the violence. And then when you lay a foreign sort of occupier on top of it, you put their army in it, then that heightens it and turns it even more nationalist than it might have otherwise been. And when the when the army tries to be soldiers but in the streets of the united kingdom when there is a separate set of emergency laws which remain in place i mean even after the peace treaty of 98 i can't remember when they finally i think it was like 2007 when they finally went back to like normal law for northern ireland you know this is i mean this is like as if the northeast of the united states was under like prevention of terrorism laws and separate emergency measures, but for 40 years, you know, um, when you add that in, I think the overreaction, which is understandable to some extent for the soldiers on the ground, right? Then the repression, the house to house searches, they alienate the Irish Catholic community and increase the support for the IRA. And the last point I'll say about this too, though, is there is a class division even within the Irish Catholics, as if you can't split it and complicate it enough. Even at the height, most Irish Catholics are not directly supporting the IRA, even when the IRA is most popular in 1972. It is a class thing. More middle class Irish Catholics who found some success and prosperity, even at lower middle class level within the British Northern Irish state, are lukewarm at best to the IRA, and they're more in favor of peaceful means. The people who take up arms and send their sons off to the IRA are these – it's an urban underclass and a rural underclass that's along the border. And so the poor Irish Catholics, it shows you the economic component of this, they are filling the ranks of the IRA. And I think that if you scratch the surface a little in Baghdad or even to some extent in Afghanistan, you find something similar, don't you, where – a lot of this stuff gets couched in Sunni Shia simplistic terms, but the reality right. is there's massive divisions within both sides. And I think that's mm-hmm. another point. But the British Army in the beginning shoots itself massively in the foot. But they do admit it and they do change and they have some more success. 
So there's a history of camaraderie with the IR, not just the IRA, but like a historical uh, history of camaraderie with former British colonies, right? I think I heard, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, but the flag of Ireland and the flag of India are the same colors for a reason. Um, it has to do with, you know, sharing intelligence and, and uh, you know, sharing a struggle of independence. Is that a rumor or is that is there some truth to that? You know, I actually don't know the answer to the I would have to look and see, and we could put it in the notes, like whether that whether that's true. But it would not surprise me because British, like states that broke away from the British Empire, have had some degree, at least uh, in terms of solidarity or lip service, to being brothers in a certain sense, right? Having a connection of resistance. Um, the Irish tapped into that the ira seriously tapped into that and so did these other resistance movements and it is no accident that there's so much sympathy for the ira and vice versa amongst these you know sort of these political parties that end up taking control of the post-colonial state and so it would not surprise me at all if, if those colors are connected to this day again another thing you'll see in northern ireland you'll see like free cashmere and then like free Ireland right next to each other with like fists. So fascinating, so fascinating. And they don't know anything about each other, most of them. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not denigrating these people, but like the kind of guys who are the toughs, the muscle in the IRA, mm -hmm. With a, there are exceptions because they that whole like poet, warrior poet thing, mm -hmm. that's like Lord Byron shit, that's like straight through the Irish culture. You know what I mean? Not that Lord Byron, you know what I mean? But that's real. And it's real in the hunger strikes, which we will have to talk about at some point when you think it's right. Like Bobby Sands and some of these guys, there is like a soft and sensitive poetic side to some of these IRA warriors. But that's like the exception, even though it gets a lot of attention. The Most of the street toughs that join the IRA, they don't know anything about the background of like Israel-Palestine or Kashmir, you know. But they Maybe just they like should listen to this show. And they then they would. <laughs> then they would. Yeah, I mean, I think mainly it's like there's a sense of solidarity in the in the British colonies for sure for sure well so let's talk about those hunger strikes since you brought them up um, I yeah. think now now is better time than, than any the hunger strikes is uh okay so I'm gonna give I'm gonna start with like my I am my blind spot is the hunger strike okay, okay. so everyone who's listening no to this worries. should understand that like I'm going to have a slightly flighty and romantic, but deeply held and somewhat intellectual view of the hunger strikes. But the hunger strikes of 1980 and 81, 81 is the pivotal year, um, are profoundly interesting because of how modern they are. It's kind of crazy this happened in 1981 and also pivotal to moving towards the peace. Now let me back up and explain. My, um, my uh, uncle Joey, my mother and my mother's uh, one of my mother's four brothers dies of a heroin overdose in 1981 on Good Friday uh, on Cross Street in Stapleton, Staten Island. Now, if you are from a vaguely Catholic, very romantic Irish Catholic family and the favorite son dies on Good Friday on Cross Street, <laughs> yeah. he will be sanctified forever. And he has sure. been. Um, sure. My grandmother, who I told you was really like supportive of the IRA, was like really following the hunger strikes at the time. She told me about it later, you know. And this also is happening the same time in 1981. It's like 17 days later after her son dies. 
that Bobby Sands, the first hunger striker, dies. And so I'm just trying to explain that it's amazing how people can connect these things in their mind, even though they seemingly are unrelated. And after the hunger strikes kick off and, and guys start starving themselves to death, and I'm going to get into the background, um, they uh, there's mass protests of like a thousand people in front of the British consulate in New York City, and people are burning Union Jack flags. I mean, go back and just go to the New York Times archive. It's ama- mm-hmm. amazing. No one knows this happened, but it was like real. Boston, Philly, San Francisco, there were massive strikes by the Teamsters and the uh, – and the dock workers, they like shut down the docks in San Francisco and refused to refuse to take British cargo off and stuff. They named streets after Bobby Sands in Tehran and like 20 other countries, including Australia. Like this was serious. So what happens? I told you that the British changed their tactics. When it's the IRA go to a cell structure, the British go to what they call um, uh, criminalization. What do they call it? Criminalization, normalization. And something else, right? And their theory is we've got to stop treating this like a war and playing into the hands of the IRA because we shot ourselves in the foot by sending the Paris in and sending this guy, like, forget his last name, this famous brigadier general who came, like, straight from Oman, you know, straight from Yemen and Oman and all these, like, wars in the colonies. And they sent him to Northern Ireland in 69. And wouldn't you know, he treated them like the Arabs, you know? Right. They realized that was a mistake. And so. In 75, they decide that they're going to try to – tell me if this sounds familiar. They're going to try to devolve most of the security to the local security forces that they're going to like train and improve professionally, right? Oh, and they're going to try okay. to pull the army out, and then we're going to stand up the Irish reformed security forces so that we can stand down and finally go home, right? Just like we do. How did that work out? Not great. The army didn't leave. <laughs> the army didn't even end Operation Banner, which was their name for it, just like Operation Iraqi Freedom until 2007, mm-hmm. right? So what? How many years is that? 46, 36 years. It's a long time. Um. Uh. So anyway, yeah, 38 years. So one of the key components to that was criminalization. So normalization was we are going. Uh, oh, oh, it's Ulster. Is this was their buzzwords? They use this. The, the strategy was called Ulsterization, Normalization, Criminalization. Ulsterization is devolve it to the Irish security forces. Normalization okay. is get the violence low enough that normal life can continue, the economy can improve, because one of the IRA tactics was to shut down the economy by bombing all economic targets. Because if the IRA said if we could shut down the economy and make this place ungovernable, the British will have to leave because they'll get nothing from it. It'll be a burden. They miscalculated right. on that. So similar things happen in the Middle East. Mm. criminalization is key to the hunger strikes criminalization was we're going to stop internment we're not going to throw these guys together because they used to like march and have like professional readings and rank structures and they would salute each other the ira prisoners i mean they would read che guevara they would read mal they'd have like readings they'd learn gaelic right because they're trying to like get back to their irish roots it was a terrorist factory they realized this and it also gave legitimacy to the ira by treating them like prisoners of war so even though they were being held without trial that actually helped them in a way to say see we are soldiers and look we get to have our formations every morning they were super disciplined in the prisons and if you were an ira guy who didn't follow it like you were in trouble hmm. um because that it was it was a message they were saying to the world that we're not terrorists we're resistors we're an army um criminalization was they said from this point forward every ira terrorist attack as they called it will be treated like street crime it will be, you know, even though there are special courts and there's no jury and it's just a judge who says, you know, you're going to prison because I say so. It was terrible. I mean, it was really bad civil liberty stuff. But 
they made them go into regular prison starting in 1976, and they would have to go and be with the regular street criminals, which meant they could no longer wear their own street clothes like they could in the internment camps. They had to wear the prison uniform. The first IRA prisoner on the date, whatever it was, January 1st, 1976, I think, that had to follow that, his name was Kieran Nugent. There's murals of him all over to this day. Kieran Nugent is handed his prison uniform the day he shows up in prison, in the new prison, the H blocks of the Mays prison that they built specifically for them, but they mixed them with common criminals. And he dropped his prison uniform and he said, I will not wear the, the, the uniform of a common criminal for I am not a criminal. I am a soldier and a volunteer in the Irish Republican Army and I shall not wear a convict's clothes, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens? They said, okay, then you'll wear no clothes. Hence began mm-hmm. the blanket protest. They wore blankets. That's all they had. They were naked and they wore blankets. This went on for years. The, this is getting a lot of public traction in the media. In the late 70s, the British are like, we'll break them. We'll make them wear the uniforms. So what do they do? They say, you can't slop out your urine and your feces because they would, they would go in like pots. You can't right. slop out several times a day when we come by with the cart unless you're wearing the convict's uniform. So what do the IRA guys do? Well, they're Irish, so they make themselves miserable to make a symbol. So they right. start they start pouring the urine like out the windows until they put, you know, special glass and they were like pouring it under the door until they blocked that up. Then they were smearing their feces on the walls. So begins the dirty protest. The dirty protest, they start getting sick and stuff obviously. Sure. Um and it's they live in a, a, a Catholic bishop in charge of Ireland comes to visit the prison and says that he had seen he had not seen such scenes of inhumanity since he worked in Calcutta in the slums. Mm-hmm. This is bad for the British. So uh, they don't really know what to do, but they really want to make these guys normalized as criminals, and the IRA won't play. So in 1980, the prisoners, though, are getting desperate because like, it's really hard to live that way, and they're not winning, and the British won't give in, and Margaret Thatcher just got elected in 79, and she's more hardcore on terrorism than anybody, and she's never going to F and give in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, we got to do the nuclear option. And there had been a long tradition in Irish history for like a thousand years of occasional hunger strikes as resistance. It's like the weapon of the week, right? You see to Guantanamo. Oh, by the way, there are massive connections between Guantanamo and the Mays prison. But mm-hmm. um, so now, including the military tribunals and the ridiculousness of that, because these IRA right. guys were put in prison with no jury um, under the terrorism laws. So in not, they, st- they decide we're going to go on hunger strike and if necessary, starve ourselves to death until they let us wear our own clothes. It seems like such a small thing to die for, right? But it was a propaganda war. And the leader of the strike is like... Symbology of it, right? Oh, it's... But it's... I'm telling you, man, I I think it's the most interesting story that no one knows about Mm -hmm. outside of the big cities of the United States and like Ireland. Um, Bobby Sands is like 27, maybe? And he's the leader of, like, the prisoners because they still do have, like, a rank structure and stuff in jail. Um, he says, I'll be the first one to go on strike. Holy shit. And he's a poet. His You can buy his books of, like, his poetry, his street, his, like, prison poetry. It's beautiful, actually. Um, he goes first, followed by Francis Hughes and eight others. Every two weeks, a new, a new guy or two goes on strike. And the idea is they want a death, like, every two weeks in the media. They knew... The thing is, Bobby knew that the Thatcher's not giving in, not until someone dies. Bobby is near death. 
and he's, you know, several weeks in. And suddenly the member of parliament for a mixed district in Northern Ireland dies of like a heart attack. Frankie McGuire, I think was his name. Sinn Féin, which is the political wing of the IRA, which had generally been a minor player and would not contest elections, they refused to recognize the parliament, um, but they were like a political organization, they were like the political face of the IRA, decides we're going to run Bobby Sands for parliament. That'll be a symbol, right? Mm. And if he wins, it's a win for us because that's more support for the IRA's cause, and there's no way that Thatcher will let a member of parliament die. Bobby Sands wins from prison. Wow. That's why you'll see shirts that say MP Bobby Sands. There's songs called MP Bobby Sands. Bobby wins and Thatcher lets him die. He stars himself to death. And so do nine others after him. And nuts. Ten guys starve themselves to death. Young men, some with kids, families. Um this is a this is a fiasco for the British. Thatcher's hard line creates a second wave of IRA recruits and energy and British deaths at a time after 10 years of war when the IRA was getting weak again. Mm. It's the worst thing ever. By the way, it they don't win. They compromise because mothers start stepping in and signing the paperwork to let the British force feed them, like Guantanamo, right? Hmm. Um. The first 10 mothers let their sons die. It, they were actually kind of bullied in some cases. Like most of them were true believers, but some of them were kind of bullied. Like, you, you know, you just don't do that. It's like snitching, you know, it's right. like street culture. You let your son die, right? But eventually, I think a lot of the mothers kind of got together and said, Jesus, like this. We don't want our sons she, to die. <laughs> she's not. Yeah. And Thatcher's yeah. not giving in. She's the iron lady. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. She, you know, it's not long after this. She sends a freaking armada of the Falklands. Like it's like straight 1680, you know? Um, so anyway. This is what happens. But the British do, like, under the table, make kind of a deal about this. And wouldn't you know that within, like, a year or two of the strike ending, the prisoners get most of their demands. But the British purposely put, like, a waiting period in there so it doesn't look like a win. Hmm. So that's how that goes down. Again, just like Google Bobby Sands, streets that are named after him all over the third world and stuff, all the protests in America. But this is the final point on that. By Sinn Féin contesting that election, which they had always refused to do, they ended up splitting their own movement again. Because there were people in the IRA who said, look at the power we have in politics if we use it. And guys like Jerry Adams, who to this day says he was never in the IRA, but he was the Belfast Brigade commander of the IRA. He's a fucking liar, okay? <laughs> and like a lot of people have like lost faith in him. But he was, he was the public face of the IRA for the longest time. He like went to the White House. He's the guy that did the deal. He used to like not be allowed to march on the St. Patrick's Day Parade in the New York, and then he was, and then he wasn't. It was like a big scandal, right? Um, his wing of the young guys are like, we need to go towards politics. And there's a division for 10 to 15 years after the hunger strike between the hardliners who want to continue the war, and they even want to have like a Tet offensive now that I got these new Libyan weapons in 86, 87, 88, and they do have a mini Tet offensive when they kill a lot of British but it doesn't get off the ground because they, they see themselves as undercut by the guys in the IRA who used to be the radicals in the early 70s who now want to get into politics. Same shit we see happen in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. And these movements just eat their own. And uh, they they realize that power and they move towards elections. And the famous phrase, and I promise I'll stop, but I think this is interesting, 
The famous phrase is by Danny Morrison. Danny Morrison was the public affairs officer for the whole IRA. He said, who here thinks that with the ballot alone, with the vote alone, we can get the British out of Ireland? And everyone at the council meeting was like, no, you know. And who thinks we can do it just with the Armalite? And some guys are like, definitely. But most people are like, no. And then he says, but who thinks that with the Armalite in one hand, and you'll always see like the paintings and the murals of like the Irish guy holding up like the Armalite in his hand, like, the AR-15, because most right. of the guns come from America. Who thinks that with the Armalite in one hand and the ballot in the other, we won't get the British out of Ireland? That becomes the strategy. But Do both. <laughs> it was always a insurgency internally by Jerry Adams and that mm. clique to actually move away from the Armalite. Mm. And now those guys who made that move after the hunger strike, are the members of parliament and the key leaders of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. Let's hold, let's hold on to that. What exactly is Sinn Féin? Because um, I'm pretty confused by this. What's interesting is back in February, right before COVID-19 was, you know, broke out into the world, this was big news that they won um, 37 seats in, in Irish parliament. Um, what exactly is Sinn Féin? And, and also, I think we can cross over from, from here to how the IRA relates to Hezbollah because mm-hmm. they're kind of on the same track. So what, what is this political party, Sinn Féin, and, and like how are they connected to the IRA? So uh, Sinn Féin is formed in like 1905 um, as a kind of like Irish nationalist political party that was going to use politics to get autonomy, right, like home rule which was kind of the thing in the empire at that time was to try to get home rule, especially in like the white colonies, like Australian stuff. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it's gone through so many splits that it's almost impossible to understand any longer, but in the modern manifestation, and it was never particularly popular in Northern Ireland. Like it didn't like the, the democratic union party or right. Or the old, I can't remember which one there. There's another party that's more mainstream and not violent. That has always generally been the like prominent one, but Sinn Féin was always kind of like the lower level. And it was the party of the urban underclass and the rural underclass among the Catholics, but it was the minority. In the modern manifestation we're talking about, Sinn Féin starts out in 1969 in that era, in the early 70s, as really a front for the IRA. They always said they weren't connected to the IRA. It was a joke. Everybody knew they were. It was an open secret, right? It, it was like a propaganda wing. It ran the newspapers. It ran like house-to-house support, canvassing, but they didn't contest elections because they refused to recognize the parliament until, the I think, the uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s. And when they started to contest elections, but it took a life of its own, especially after the hunger strikes, it becomes a legitimate political party that theoretically calls itself Irish Republican and Democratic Socialist, right? 
Actually, at first I think it just called itself socialist. Now they say like democratic socialist. It shouldn't. It means we ourselves or ourselves alone. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's the nationalist credentials of that. Um, now, it is a full-throated political party, and it's gone in that direction ever since the hunger strikes. It does hold seats in the House of Commons. Um, as of now, for example, it's having another wa- wave, and it's largely in response to Brexit. Um, it's so fascinating. The old IRA guys who are political Sinn Féin are very pro-EU. <laughs> They're pro like anything that has open borders, right, with the Republic. They see everything as a step to getting to that united Ireland, right? And they reject like English parochialism, British parochialism as like a way to hold them down. So there's a lot of concern. There was a cover of The Economist about five months ago that said, will Brexit be the thing that either reignites the IRA's war and or actually creates a united Ireland? Could it be Brexit? I mean, there's a cover of The Economist, right? Hmm. Really interesting. Like, pick it up or, or, or link to it. Uh, so anyway, once they started contesting elections, um, after, you know, in the years uh, after the hunger strike, they become more powerful than the IRA. And many people in the IRA resistance side, the radicals in the IRA, the hardliners, I guess you'd say, they see Sinn Féin as like a um, – as almost like undercutting the resistance, like colluding, you know, abandoning them or something and collaborating and getting involved and getting too much power. That's who they are. Um, they're the second largest party in 2020. Uh, there's uh, 18 seats in the UK House Commons, I believe. And uh, they have seven seats, which is like the second largest after the DUP – um, and, uh, you know, uh, in Northern Ireland. So, I mean, they're legit, you know, they're, they're like a, a legit group, you know, and, uh, but they have a very tenuous relationship because they don't recognize, they don't really recognize British rule. So it's very strange. And they also are very involved in local politics, like controlling the, mach- the party machinery of the Northern Irish state. Right. Hmm. So what's what's the now coming to, to be super contemporary since now we know what Sinn Fen is and and you know it's it's current you know iteration. Uh, what's the what's the connection now between uh, Hezbollah and the IRA or or even Sinn Fen for that matter? So you know there again there's the the conceptual connection which I think is important for framing these these conflicts and then there's mm-hmm. like the direct connection the actual so. There was a big story, um, I want to say around the early Bush years, 2001, two, 3, where like three IRA hardliners who didn't really accept the truce, they probably belonged to like the offshoot splinters called like the real IRA or the continuity IRA, which are still around that like kept up the armed resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, they were arrested in Colombia and they were like working at like a FARC training camp. That's where the farts come in, right? Yeah, but there were also connections to Hezbollah, which is weird because um, Hezbollah also has a presence in South America, in Africa, through like the Lebanese diaspora, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's like some of the early reports on that. If you look at even current reports, one of the other newer splinter groups, I told you about the real IRA and the continuity IRA. NIRA? It, there's that, now there's the new IRA, right? Uh, yeah, NIRA. 
And there's a lot of stories, um, and there's this is contested about the, the there's some truth to it, I think, where like former members of the Provos, right? Former members of the Provost hardliners who join these groups have like reactivated their contacts with Hezbollah on finance and weapons. And the idea being that they share some of their expertise with Hezbollah and vice versa. And Hezbollah is the more powerful partner, of course, that has way more guns and way more fighters. And so the big problem these splinter groups are having is killing people. They're having trouble getting enough guns and enough support to like make, you know, to make a statement and get any publicity. And so they're like, how do we get more bombs and guns and stuff? And so they see like Lebanon and, and Hezbollah. And then of course, if you're like the British or the Western media, you really want to make this about Iran. Like, see, Iran is nefarious. They're trying to restart the war with the IRA, you know. Um, but, you know, for example, I think uh, maybe in like August, it was like August of this year, like nine members of the new IRA, including some some women, were like arrested by like a long running, like undercover op by like the FBI, right? M1, uh, MI5. In, in, yeah, I wanted, to talk, I wanted to talk about that because in preparation for our um, uh, meeting here, this is something that uh, I read an article that came out in September, so early September. So I think th- that particular incident happened in late August. And then um, the uh, the national news put out this um, opinion piece about that link between um, Iran, Hezbollah, and the new IRA there uh, that you just spoke about a moment ago. And I found it so fascinating because, one, I didn't even hear about it. Right. Uh, it was like just relatively quiet uh, uh, against the backdrop of everything else going on. Um, and two, uh, I was like, all right, well, based on what you said earlier about how every generation has its like new Phoenix like uprising. Right. Is the NIRA the newest iteration of this? Is this like the Gen Z or whatever generation of folks that's coming up now um, and, and rekindling the flames with Hezbollah and, and you know. allegedly Iran is this, do you see this as that new incarnation? You know, they want to be, Mm -hmm. um, that, that's, that's their goal. And I think that there are people according to tradition within like the new IRA who are looking for a new foreign backer or a new foreign patron. And Gaddafi's very out, (laughs) (laughs) um, a bayonet (laughs) up the rectum in charge of that. Um, but the solidarity with, with Hezbollah and the potential Iranian backers, because like who is styling themselves as the resistance to Israel and the you know solidarity with the new age of anti neo imperial resistance? I mean, it is. I mean, I'm a big believer that the threat from Iran is exaggerated, and America does most of like the makes its own problems, but they do style themselves that way for whatever reason. And so, if you're the new IRA, it makes sense. And 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 to tie it to some of the stuff we've been talking about that no one's ever really heard of. What was one like if you read that national news article, one of the events where like these new IRA guys were like surveilled and found was at an embassy event commemorating the death of whom in Tehran, like the Bobby Sands. I mean, th- I mean, it really all does get connected, right? And it even mentions in the article about how there's a street named after him in Tehran. So there's already solidarity there because of like the the Iranian, you know, the new Islamic Republic, which was very new at the time, did say like, look, see, the West is bad and we support the IRA and these hunger strikers. And like, that works perfectly with our martyrdom culture, you know, uh, even though there's like questions about suicide, but we'll just table that, you know. But yeah, so this was, this was a real thing. I think what's interesting though, 
about the IRA and Hezbollah is that they are very similar. And my family can't see that, for example. I mean, because there is a sense among New Yorkers who are firefighters after 9-11 that Arab and Muslim are synonymous with terrorism, or at least terrorism is synonymous with a subset of Arab and Muslim, right? And so they can't see that, like, resistance from Hezbollah could have any of the same legitimacy that they grant to the IRA, including some apology, if we're honest, right, for some of their atrocities. Because a lot of – the IRA killed a lot of civilians. I mean, they, they generally tried not to more than a lot of groups like but in Iraq. But they still did. They definitely did. I mean, for mm-hmm. a million reasons. And they did some, like, messy stuff. Like, is shooting – the wife of a prison guard at the Mays prison in the face when she opens the door, a legitimate form of resistance because there's hunger strikes going on? No. I've got issues with that, right? Now, that, yeah. that, was, an, that was a one-off to a certain extent, but stuff like that did happen. So anyway, right. Hezbollah is painted by Israel to their benefit, lies, which is like how they roll. It's how their security services roll. It's how their political system rolls. It's how their right-wing dominated friggin' government rolls is Hezbollah is terrorist, terrorist only, and if you don't believe us, we'll point to these suicide bombings from 35 years ago to prove it. The reality is that Hezbollah is an army, and it is... The army of Lebanon. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. and the vast, vast majority of their targets and attacks and the casualties they cause since the 1983 Marine... Beirut Marine Barracks bombing have been Israeli soldiers. In fact, the leadership of Hezbollah for a long time now, but especially since um, Fadallah, you know, um, eh, they have actually said specifically, like, we should target, it's important that we mainly target soldiers and that we show that we're an army and we don't just like kill civilians in some sort of like sectarian warfare. Like mm-hmm. they're really careful about that. And the Israelis were legitimately military occupiers under international law of southern Lebanon. And so their 17, 18 year, depending on how you count, count uh, insurgency that eventually gets the Israelis to leave in 2000, although they invade again in 2006, um, and take a little bit of a bloody nose. You know, they are – that's legitimate resistance in many ways. You don't have to like it. You don't have to be in favor. You could even be a pacifist. But you have to recognize that if we're talking about what is – what when is it okay, you know, under large parts of international law to resist, I mean, military occupation, right? And so what makes Hezbollah and the IRA similar is that they both were very careful about the word legitimate target the phrase legitimate targets. The IRA was obsessed with it and always arguing about it. And they were always like expanding and contracting like an accordion. What's in a, what's in a, what's a legitimate target. Meaning everyone agrees in the IRA that killing a British soldier who's on foot patrol in Belfast is a legitimate target. Right Mm -hmm. now there's, as you go down the list though, there's more and more debate. And again, it expands and contracts. What about police? Well, the police in Northern Ireland are a sectarian-dominated Protestant force that works as, on behalf of the British, and so, and they also wear body armor and carry M16s, you know, or whatever. So right. they're legitimate targets. Now it's chicken or egg why they have to carry those, but you know, they're legitimate. But it keeps going down to: Is it okay to kill an army reservist while he's 
not in on duty? Well, yes, they say, and they start assassinating him in their houses and at the gas station and in their cars. Is it a, what about prison guards? Well, eventually they decide, yes, yes, you can kill because they're agents of the state. What about census workers, though? What about contract workers who are improving or building new border security forces, army or police stations, even Catholics? Can they be murdered? Can they be pulled out of their buses on the way to do the building and be shot? Well, for a time, they say yes. So you see how this keeps expanding. Yeah, you're starting to get really blurry on those lines of what's uh, acceptable under international law or not. And we saw that in Iraq, didn't we? I mean, in terms of what's a legitimate target. Now, Hezbollah, my point is that Hezbollah does much of the same thing. But here's my controversial thesis. Hezbollah, since at least like 1987-88, has been more strict in their targeting and what they consider a legitimate target than the IRA that so many white anglo or european you know background americans and europeans who kind of support the ira or are sympathetic to it hezbollah has been way more careful and way more strict in their targeting of what's legitimate and i just think that that is an important point whenever we discuss lebanon and israel and i like analogies they're not perfect but it's very important well i, I think that's that that is super important because i think the basic uh, the basic bitch uh, um, argument against uh, Hezbollah, at least right now, very contemporary, based on that article, was that Hezbollah is now setting up caches of weapons and uh, ammonium nitrate, which you'll remember uh, was the chemical that uh, blew up Beirut uh, just this past summer, um, that they're storing caches of these weapons and, and ammonium nitrate in European countries like you know France and Spain and Germany and, and, and uh, even Ireland. Um, and that there's that connection there uh, and that Hezbollah is helping the IRA or the new IRA specifically on how to create IEDs uh, and, and how to do other uh, insurgency tactics. Uh, and because uh, Hezbollah is apparently a, you know, a, a puppet of uh, Iran, that it's really Iran's, you know, infiltrating Europe uh, so that whenever, you know, at the Ayatollah's behest, they can just snap a finger and just, you know, start some, you know, European terrorism, you know, uh, and, and, and that's the, that's kind of the opinion coming out of the article. And, yeah. you know, in my opinion, um, I think there's like probably some truth that if they were actually finding weapons and, and ammonium nitrate, that's, that's very, uh, concerning, which it's, it appears that they have, but at the same time, I think what you're talking about, about how narrow scoped, uh, Hezbollah's targeting has been, you know, towards what they consider as legitimate targets, uh, specifically uh, Israeli military. Um, it it kind of runs at, at, at odds there. So I, I feel like the truth is somewhere in between, you know, uh, and I'm just not sure what to make of it, but it's very, very fascinating. Um, absolutely. And um, I, I think there's a lot of really important work, uh, usually at the gray zone now by Gareth Porter, Mm -hmm. on the ammonium nitrate story and i will say that there is a lot there are a lot of holes in at least the extent and scope of the israeli argument like the in other words this the scope of the problem and how nefarious like iran and hezbollah are on this there's a lot of holes in that now again none of that's to say like there's nothing to it but this, this is very self-serving for Israel. I mean, if they want America to bomb Iran, if they want forever support, you know, if they want 
other folks to be sympathetic and do some of their fighting for them against Hezbollah. Because Israel can't beat Hezbollah. Hezbollah is the most dangerous thing that's ever happened in Israel. It, 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 it's an identity crisis for them. Losing to Hezbollah repeatedly, or not winning, which is losing, has shaken their confidence. And oh, by the way, the largest anti-war movement in Israeli history, it's very dormant now, because it's gone so far right, the largest anti-war movement in Israeli history is called, oh man, it's called like the Four Mothers Movement or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you can Google it, like the correct number Four of mothers. mothers. But what it is, is a bunch of mothers of soldiers who were on occupation duty in southern Lebanon in that insurgency, which looked a lot like occupation duty in Northern Ireland, a lot like occupation duty in Kandahar or Baghdad. They said like no like no more like we no more of our sons are going to go die that's not what israel is not supposed to be like an aggressor and like this is a losing war and they had a lot of reasons for thinking it and they formed like a very there was a really important documentary done on it by the way uh, back in the day but anyway award winning i believe but hezbollah scares israel because they do have a lot of support among the Lebanese people, even though the Israelis don't want to admit that. And they do have that backer in Iran, right? Which Iran does not run Hezbollah as directly as it's made out, but they do have a patron. And so, and they're effective. In 2006, when Israel invaded in July and August, it was like however many day war they called it. Like, mm -hmm. I gave a presentation. I was assigned because I was the geek in the unit. I gave a presentation to, when I was captain, to my squadron. Uh, for like officer professional development on that war and like what the lessons learned were because Israel took like a a real nose bloodying their tanks got destroyed by like oh. things that looked a whole lot like EFPs mm -hmm. um, oh yeah what we know of as EFPs in East Baghdad mm -hmm. were being used in southern Lebanon in like the eight, late 80s early 90s it's not new and it, that's important to understand like so a lot of these tactics so anyway Hezbollah's fighters stand and fight, and they are effective, and they are well-trained, and some of them are uniform. They wear uniforms. They, they wear camouflage. Uh, one brigade. Hezbollah really only put one permanent official, like, brigade of Hezbollah into the field, and it ground the Israeli army's best units and really messed up its reservists and exposed them. Uh, it ground them to a halt, fought them to a standstill. Now, I'm not saying that Hezbollah won because Hezbollah says they won. Israel said they won. The reality is Israel kind of lost because they didn't win. But Hezbollah said, like, we can – you want to roll? Like, we're ready. And they won the propaganda war, of course, because Israel then starts bombing Beirut and bridges and water factories and stuff, you know. Right. But, like, Israel is terrified of Lebanon of, – of Hezbollah. That, that war from 82, 83 to 2000, when they eventually pulled out, has been called Israel's Vietnam by scholars and Israeli journalists. The casualty rates when a function of Israel's population and the size of its army are very similar to the Vietnam War. That's interesting. It it was a national crisis for them. You know, you always hear about the Vietnam syndrome of American mm -hmm. politics and military affairs. There's a Lebanon syndrome in, in Israel, and it's still there. And so... And again, like the British, the Israelis shot themselves in the foot with Hezbollah, and they they made Hezbollah the movement of the Lebanese Shia. And so legitimate is the resistance and the pride in the resistance of Hezbollah against Israel 
that like the Maronite Catholic archbishops were like giving speeches throughout the 80s and 90s and then especially in 2006 like from the pulpit supporting Muslim like Shia Muslim Hezbollah now in Lebanon they fight each other sometimes and definitely politically mm-hmm. and sometimes in their militias and they don't love the fact that Hezbollah kind of has a state within a state but when it comes to their resistance to Israel it's considered very legitimate and cross it's the only cross sectarian like thing that folks really agree on in Lebanon is hmm. you know that plus corruption which they're all getting pretty frustrated with but you know is this legitimate resistance to Israel and where does Hezbollah gain its support the urban underclass of the southern Beirut urban su- squatter suburbs of South Beirut which was branded what the belt of misery which looks a lot the like the belt poor of misery the belt of misery that's what they call the suburbs of South Beirut Jeez. That's where Hezbollah <laughs> recruits, and where else? In the rural, forgotten, doesn't get enough resources for the state, southern Nabatea section of Lebanon, where the Shia underclass lives. So just like the IRA, which got its fighters and did most of its operations in the urban underclass ghettos, housing projects of Belfast, and also along the border in the very rural and sort of forgotten areas of Lebanon or in the southern counties in Northern Ireland. Hmm. I mean, if you're talking about shooting in the foot, I think one one thing that's interesting about this current situation um, with Hezbollah and stockpiling weapons and that link to the IRA is that evidently last month or two months ago, I should say, uh, Trump, the Trump administration had announced that it was reimposing sanctions on, on Tehran. Um, when uh, a bunch of uh, you know, European nations don't want any, any, uh, anything to do with that because they believe that it could provoke Tehran into like you know actually carrying out this um, you know uh, this terrorism that's being levied against them vis-a-vis Hezbollah. It's almost like a self-serving you know uh, uh, prophecy, if you will. Right? They're saying that you know they're trying to make this connection between Iran and, and Hezbollah, and you know, in this case potentially the IRA. Or the new IRA, uh, and then at the same time, you know, we're going to poke them in the eye and be like, hey, do something about right. it, you know? Well, um, there's more consequences for the Europeans. I mean, they, they see themselves sure. like, hey, we're going to get involved in this fight. It's going to hurt us, not you, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's really, it's the counterproductivity of like foreign, you know, you know where I stand on this stuff. I'm pretty radical on it, I guess. But the counterproductivity of, military interventionism and drumming up like of new cold wars and sanctions and isolation of Iran or anybody else is so intense that you almost like understand the conspiracy theorists who see it as some sort of like, you know, criminal complicity of like a globalist elite or something. You can understand where it comes from because it's so counterproductive every time that you almost have to wonder. Now I, I don't subscribe to that, but I mean the, it's crazy how look the worst thing that ever happened like the worst thing that ever happened in the united states is israel like and i don't mean that literally but like that alliance that ironclad no matter what no strings attached alliance has caused so much trouble i mean it's like the little brother in the schoolyard who's like socking everybody in the face and getting his big brother into fights he doesn't need and doesn't want and aren't in his interest to simplify it over and over and over again and israel made hezbollah 10 feet tall Israel largely helped make Iran 10 foot tall with the complicity of the United States. 
And these people are masters of propaganda. Do you know what day Martyrs Day is in southern Lebanon where hundreds of thousands of people go into the streets and have celebrations to celebrate the uh, like the first suicide bombing in November of 1982? It's November 11th. It's Armistice Day. Mm. It's Veterans Day. They And they play it up, right, in their language about this. But when you look at how counterproductive it is you only really have to look at the quotes of not exactly dovish in their past lives or current manifestations israeli political leaders israeli political leaders in the mainstream now admit or did admit that israel created hezbollah like just like obama created isis right (laughs) but like (laughs) but like more directly you know what i mean like in terms of like they they created the They made resistance through their military occupation and brutality in the Shia communities, right? They turned the Shia communities against them that had for the longest time actually been kind of uh, more sympathetic to the Israelis because they didn't like the Palestinians and stuff. So anyway, Yitzhak Rabin, who is now thought of as like this dovish peacemaker but was like a seriously like military guy and a hardliner for a long time, he's the one – he said, we let the Shia genie out of the bottle. That was his quote saying basically like we kind of – did this, you know, and um, and Shimon Perez is he came out and said something to the effect of like he literally said like we create like we there was no Hezbollah until Israel invaded and made one, you know, and uh, so that to me is like oh boy, like why do we not learn? I know how much of a cliche and a platitude that is about military history and stuff, but. God, there's a reason it became a platitude because right. that's a serious question we have to ask ourselves. Like, are we – do we really want to become Israel? Do we want to become a permanent war state? We could argue about whether they need to be or not. I don't think they do, but we could mm-hmm. argue that point. But, oh my God, like the counterproductivity of it, unbelievable, unbelievable. Definitely not. So, yeah, let's let's wrap it up right here. But that was um, – that was great, man. We've been We've been – really eager to do this episode for a long time. Um, it's been in such demand. Um, having an analysis of the IRA and Hezbollah together is, uh, I think it's going to do it. I think it's going to open up a lot of minds. Um, Danny, anything that you're working on that you want to pitch right now, or do you want to, you want to shoot? Yeah. I mean, you know, just, um, you know, my stuff's constantly coming out. I've, I've got a piece that when this releases will be like hot and running through the syndication on the, the, I'm taking a hard look at the Biden team and the military industrial complex like everybody else is, but you know, I'm better. So read mine. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm just more manic and I, don't, I sleep less, but um, there's that. And then, you know, I, I you will see, um, you know, Christian Sorensen was on this pod. I was super happy about it. Um, the thing that's taking up a lot of my time right now is this Eisenhower media network, you know, of veteran military national security, kind of anti-war, skeptical of American foreign policy activists. So you're going to see a lot of those voices. So, you know, throw Eisenhower Media Network or EMN into your, like, Google alerts. And um, we got 10 uh, men and women right now who are just going to be flooding the media as much as possible. But we're trying to get alternative voices that aren't given the Pentagon or the Raytheon line who have been there and done that. So that's my big thing right now. It's not just me. But check out our people. There's some great folks. Yeah, and we're and we're excited for EMN to launch. Ever since that we we heard about it, we've been uh, like eager to get people like Christian on the show. So we're definitely 
uh, excited about having you know more people from EMN on and and uh, making sure people are directed over there. Um, but yeah, let's wrap things up right here. Thanks everyone for for listening to another episode of Bro History. Make sure that you rate and review the podcast if you're listening on um, Apple Podcast. Um, subscribe if you're listening on uh, on on watching on YouTube. And then uh, make sure if you if you want to support us, uh, get extra content, early content releases. Um, you can join us on Patreon. You get access to our Slack, where we're uh, where we're you know talking shit to each other. So it's <laughs> uh it's fun. It's a fun thing to join. Um, we got some really vibrant conversations going on there. Uh, Danny, anything else? No, Dan. Just uh, thanks for having me, and uh, hope people enjoy. If anybody ever has a question or whatever, skepticalvet.com and my podcast forks on a hill you can send an email to me i will answer everyone for my sins just give me a few days <laughs> awesome all right well thanks danny peace hey thanks fellas Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.